Well, let's go back to the Gospel of John, chapter 1, where we started last week. We started a series in the Gospel of John. So we're going to be continuing from verses uh, 6 through 13 today. So follow along. You can follow on the screen, the Bible app, and they still make Bibles. I think they still print Bibles, and so that's a possibility as well. So if you'd like to follow along, any of those ways are sufficient. So let's follow along together. Verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word that provides life, and for Jesus and his life that provides light to us. How to live this life, what our purpose is while we're here, where we're going, all that comes together through your word and through Jesus. And God, we pray today as we just discuss, look at, hear from this passage, God, that this will be more than just words in our ears, but it will be words that change our heart because we're willing to join you in this process. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Before we get, jump into the text, I wanna just follow up on Celeste's, uh, her video. Um, that's an awesome story. I don't know if, if you um, got what she was saying there, but she wants to raise money to, um, to, so she can provide these, and what are these called again? Oxygen sensors, oxygen sensors to people who are in the hospital, people who are struggling, people at home who, are, uh, who may just need that little added security. And so what a great opportunity to come alongside her. And these things are like 12, 14 bucks each, very, very inexpensive. And so uh, what we're gonna be doing is we have an offering plate at the door, and the church is going to collect money, and then she's going to get these distributed out into our community, into the hospitals, and so on. So what an awesome opportunity to do something practical. So I love this, that she took her horrible situation, I guess, so to speak. I mean, you were in a bad situation in the hospital there for quite a few days, and instead of just being so consumed about, you know, oh, poor me, she's looking for opportunities to encourage and minister to others while she was in the hospital and now that she's out of the hospital. So I hope you'll join in with her. Every one of us can afford probably 5, 10, 12, 15 bucks at least, and so I encourage you to, to do that today. So verse 6, uh, John writes, there's a man sent from God whose name was John. Now he's not talking about himself here. He's talking about the person we refer to as John the Baptist and there's going to be a lot more about John the Baptist coming later. Today we won't get into a lot about John the Baptist, but there was a certain degree of the fact that people knew who John the Baptist was. It was a given. He doesn't go in explaining John and his credentials. He just jumps right in and says, John the Baptist was sent from God. And what I love about the, the person of John the Baptist was he was known as a guy who was serious about his task. He was serious about what God had called him to do. And what God had called him to do was to become a witness, to be a witness. Verse 7, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light. So his job, to bear witness about the light. 
Now, I've asked Hank, today's Family Worship Sunday, he's going to come and help me on an illustration up here today. So if Hank could make his way up here, if he's nearby. Yeah, there he is. And Hank works for the GBI. That stands for Georgia Bureau of Investigation. And it, can we get this mic on, Richard? Thanks. And so I was thinking about, come on over here, Hank. Hank's going to, to help me be the best witness that I can be. And I was thinking about a, a crime scene that I saw, a situation I saw where a crime was committed. And I haven't seen too many really big crimes in my life, but uh, the one which is a little out of your jurisdiction. But I was in New York City the first time I went there, and we saw actually a police chase. And just right down the block from me, a car crashed into a barrier by the road there on the streets where they were doing construction. Three dudes jumped out of the car and began to run, flee from the, which I found out later were the police. I didn't know that. And the, the police were, had their gr- guns drawn and they were running after these guys. And so Hank's here to help me to know how to be a bit, uh, uh, the best witness I can be and ask me some questions. But, you know, one thing I do regret is I didn't take one of those molds and take footprints and get their foot. Is that what a witness should do? Maybe just kind of go and like get a footprint from the scene or something like that? No. I shouldn't do that? No, you should leave that the pro- to the professionals. Leave that. Okay, so um, what about fingerprints? Negative. No. DNA, all right? No. Collect some DNA? No. 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 None so, of that. So what am I looking to do as a witness? Be a good witness. And how do I do that? Um, you don't get involved. Okay. You kind of stand back. You observe everything that's going on. Um, if there's somebody involved, you see what they're wearing, what they look like, what race they are, how tall they are. Um, just gather as much information as you can about what's going on and don't get involved. Okay. So when the, when the police officers ask me questions, then what should I respond with? I mean, how should I tell them? What, to, what, what, should, I, what should I do? You should just tell them what you observed. That's kind of boring. So I can embellish it a little bit? No, do not embellish it. Okay, all. so just tell them what I saw. Yeah, if you embellish, you're going to lead them down the wrong path. Okay, but that sounds so easy, yeah. so simple, right? Yeah. Okay. It is simple. Okay. Well, thanks, Hank. Give him a hand for helping us. You can put it back over there. And, and the whole purpose is sometimes we make such a big deal about being a witness for Christ. Like, oh, I can't do it. Like, it's too hard. It's too difficult. And Hank got it right. I mean, just just tell him what you saw. Tell him what happened. Tell him what you observed. And that's what we do. And the problem is I think a lot of people cannot be what John the Baptist was, a witness for the light, to bear witness for the light, because we really aren't really that impacted by what happened to us or it was so long ago that we forgot the significance it made. Because that story from New York City happened 10 years ago, but I still remember all the details. I don't forget it because it was pretty significant to see something of that caliber Uh, while we were there and be so close to that happening. But when Jesus comes in your life, but it's not really that big a deal, you're not going to really have that many details to share about what Jesus did and who he is because it wasn't that big a deal for you possibly. But a witness is able to say, look, here's what I saw. Here's what Jesus did, and here's the difference it made in my life. And so that's what John is doing. John is this big figure. He's this great prophet, but he clearly understands that his role is to be subordinate to Jesus Christ. Jesus was the big deal. John wasn't the big deal. So he came to bear witness about the light. And last week we talked about this metaphor of word, Jesus was the word, and we've talked about light as well. John's going to use the gospel of John, uh, the apostle John, is going to use lots of metaphors about Jesus. Today he uses this one again, light. 
And the term light is a lot different than what our culture thinks about this idea of light. It's, it's kind of sad that our culture sees you know, us as being the light. Like if you live up to your potential, if you know your potential, the light's in you. Be true to yourself and you can, you know, you can fix the world if you just shine your light. I, I got this quote from Oprah. She said, I believe in one, in one God force that lives inside of us all. And once you tap into that, you can do anything. All right? That's sort of the culture's idea of a light, all right? that we're the light. But Jesus makes it clear, John makes it clear, and John the Baptist made it clear that Jesus is the light, not us. We're not the light. John wasn't the light. Jesus was the light. And we saw this verse last week. And let's go back and look at verse 4 again. He said, in Jesus was life, and the life was the light of men. So the light doesn't come from you. The light isn't come from inside of you, and if you just can be good enough a person, then you're going to bring just harmony and joy to the universe, all right? That's not the way it works. Jesus is the light, and believers are called to reflect the light of Jesus so that they can see Jesus through us. So the question is, how much of the light do we reflect to those around us? That person that meets you for lunch, or that guy who you go on business trip with, or that lady that you interact with at the office, how much of the light of Jesus do they see, or do they, all they see is just you getting in the way all the time? So John came to be a witness, to bear witness about the light. And again, John was this great figure. He was this great personality. He's a guy who could have easily made it about himself, right? But he didn't. He's like, I'm not worthy. Jesus is the one. And, and John the Baptist, he was prophesied about in the Old Testament. If you go back to the book of Malachi, which is the last book in the Old Testament, there's this amazing prophecy about John the Baptist. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, it says, God says, I'm sending my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Then the Lord who you are seeking will suddenly come to his temple. Wow. John's prophesied about. The last book of the Old Testament, leading right into Jesus. And here's this amazing prophecy. But here's one thing you may not be aware of. If you take your Bible and you flip to Malachi, and you go to the last chapter, and then you flip the page, there's probably some sort of you know, dialogue, some kind of uh, written about the New Testament and the transition period. But here's what you may not know is the fact that after God spoke through his prophet Malachi, until God spoke again through Jesus Christ, 400 years went by. 400 years of silence where God did not communicate in the way that he normally does through his prophets, through what we talked about last week, through visions and dreams. There was just silence from God. And there was just waiting. Waiting for what's next. And I think it's so perfect, the fact that the way that God set this, I mean, his sovereignty and his just supernatural ability to know that as we wait and we anticipate, and what's going on, God? And a year passes, two years passes, ten years passes, a hundred years pass, a lifetime passes. And God, you made this incredible promise that you're going to send your messenger to prepare the way for the Lord, and he's going to come all of a sudden. But what's going on? It's not happening. You know, waiting. We don't like to wait. Did you know this? That three years, if you live to 70 years old, three years of your life will be spent waiting, whether that's in the grocery store, maybe four if you, you know, live in Bainbridge waiting at Walmart, 
three years waiting in line for your groceries, waiting in line for all the other stuff we do in life, you know, whether it's for even the microwave, meant to speed up our time, you sit there and you wait for the timer to go off, you wait for your cup of coffee to be finished, you wait, guys, for your wife to get ready so y'all can leave. We're, all, we're doing waiting all the time, three years. But here's the thing to remember. For God's plan to develop in our life, usually it requires waiting. Let me say that again. For God's plan to develop in our life, usually it requires waiting. And God does this on purpose. God doesn't just want to fix your problems. He wants to transform you so that you will reflect his light better. He's looking for the opportunity. What we say, God, where are you? Why aren't you coming through? God says, this is the plan so that your life will better reflect me. And waiting on him requires us to trust him more. It makes us say, God, I need you. God, I need you to show up. It stretches us. And so like Malachi, I'm sending my messenger, and he will prepare the way. Don't give up. Don't quit. Wait for it. Wait on God. Wait on what God promised. And then we have verses like Galatians 4.4, which says God's plan. It says, for when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman. When the time had come, when the fullness of time, God's timetable, not our timetable. Please remember that. Remember John the Baptist. Remember the, the idea of being a witness and being uh, able to say in the midst of difficulties, in the midst of things not working out the way that you think, in the midst of being in the hospital, in a job situation that you feel trapped in, remember that God has you there waiting for a purpose. And it isn't so you can shut down and lose faith, but it's to make you into a better light for him so you can shine him through you, so you can reflect his light in a better way. And so John, verse 7, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Again, John knew he wasn't primary. In verse 9, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. The light that gives light to, the life that gives light to everyone. Now, that's pretty inclusive, right? That's pretty broad. Everyone has the light. I won't go into great detail about this, but God has given his light to everyone through Christ. He's given his revelation for all to see. Three C's, just to help you remember, through creation. Through creation. Romans 1 says that God has revealed himself in creation. If we're willing to honestly desire to know God and see God and understand there's something bigger than us. God says he reveals himself through creation. He reveals himself through our conscience as well. That God is putting in, in, he's put in all of us this internal, inner moral compass that we know right from wrong. We know the difference. And that's God has instilled that in us. And then in Christ, so creation, conscience, and in Christ, the ultimate revelation of God. God has given us these things as a revelation to himself. So the true light, it gives light to everyone. God has revealed himself. And he's revealed himself as perfect and loving and holy and truthful, compassionate, just, forgiving. God has revealed himself in all these ways. And you would think that if God revealed himself in all his perfection, in all his beauty, that the only response by his created beings, us humans, would be, wow, thank you. Thank you so much for showing yourself to us. 
But unfortunately, that's not the case. Look at verse 10. Jesus, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, we learned last week. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. It's very sad. It's very sad from a pastor's standpoint. I know it's sad from a parent's standpoint when you see your children not follow God. They move away. They do their own thing. And you think, wow, you saw God's beauty. You saw his revelation. You saw it. You heard. How can you turn away from something so beautiful and wonderful and good? And that's what happened to Israel. That's what happened to God's people. Jesus came revealing the character of God. He did miracles. He revealed God. He healed people. And yet, they rejected Jesus. And here's the thing. Rejecting Jesus is not an evidence issue. Just be aware of that. Rejecting Jesus is never an evidence issue. It's a moral issue. It's a heart issue why people reject Jesus. It's not an evidence thing. Think about the story of the rich guy and Lazarus back in Luke. And think about the story where the rich man died and he went into Hades and he was in torment and he begged Abraham to send Lazarus back to earth to warn his brothers to repent so they wouldn't join him there in hell. And Abraham's response to the rich man was quite revealing. It said, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone raises from the dead. Think about that. They won't hear God. God's revealing. God's showing. God's pointing himself out. He's revealing his light to people. If they won't respond to that, they're not going to respond to somebody even coming back from the dead. Why? Because it's not an evidence problem. It's a heart problem. Think about the Pharisees. I read the story a few weeks ago. We're sharing it in my Bible class that when children are born into the family of a Pharisee, and the Pharisees were these high moral uh, spiritual leaders during Jesus' time and during the time of the early church. They literally, when they were two years old, they would put honey on the scroll of the Torah, the Old Testament, and they would have their little kid lick the honey off of the scroll. Why did they do that? Because they wanted the first memory, one of their first memories to be, how sweet are your words to my taste? Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Psalm 119, 103. And as they raised these kids in this Pharisee family, they would begin at four to have them memorize the book of Leviticus. If you've ever read Leviticus, it's a hard book to read, more or less memorize. By 12, they memorized Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And as a teenager, they would memorize the prophets and all the book of Psalms. That's a long book. That's what... The Pharisees required of their kids. Yet the Pharisees did not recognize God when he stood right in front of them. Here they knew all this stuff. Yet they rejected. Why? Because they couldn't see past their own expectations of what the Messiah should be. They had so said in their mind, and they were arrogant, and they were stubborn, and Jesus wouldn't cater to their ambitions and to their desire to be in control. And so they ultimately were instrumental in putting him to death. So you see, it's not an evidence problem. It's a heart problem why we reject God. And it's a heart problem, step on some toes, it's a heart problem why you don't make reading God's word a commitment in your life. 
It's why you don't make prayer commitment to your life. It's not a time issue. It's a heart issue. It's a priority issue. And so Jesus wanted them to be clear, and John wanted them to be clear. Look, God's revealed himself to you. He's there. But you're not going to get it through rote reading the scriptures without your heart engaging what's being said. You're not going to get it just by going through the motions spiritually. Because why? John 3.19, we'll see this in a few weeks, but people love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. They like the stuff they do. They like the world that they're living in. They don't want God reigning on their parade. Again, it's a moral issue, not an evidence issue. Verse 9 and 10 again. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Jesus says in Matthew, seeing that they don't see. His revelation was there, but people just didn't have their spiritual eyes open to be able to see. How many of you guys have ever seen those illusions where you look at something and it looks one way and then you kind of look and blink and then you see something else another way? Y'all have seen those before? Well, I'm going to show you one in just a second. All right, and so there's either a guy, he's either facing forward or he's facing sideways, okay? So forward or sideways. So I want you to raise your hand to tell me which one that you see first. All right, so go ahead, Mason, show that picture. All right. So who sees a guy facing sideways? All right, who sees a guy facing forward? Who at this point sees both? And who doesn't see both? All right, a couple of people honest, all right? Yeah, takes a minute, right? And when you see these illusions, what happens is you look at them, and it's like tricky, and then finally, once you figure it out, but sometimes you just need somebody to come over and show, show you. They're like, okay, see, right here, that part is facing this way, and I would try to explain that to you, but I, I, I won't be very good at it, but I could draw it and show you if I could, but you get the idea that you want to, sometimes you just have to lay it out for somebody, and then finally they like, they have that aha moment, like, oh, I, I, I see, finally, I get it, I get it, I see. And that's a, that's a really cool moment when you kind of help somebody see something they couldn't see before. And that goes back to our witness, and John as the witness, and being a witness, that God has called us to be that person to say, hey, let me help you see. You see, but you don't see the full picture. You see, but there's more to the story. There's more to see. And God uses us. If you saw the verse of the day pop up on your device this morning, it was uh, a man can build a house, but God is the one who gives the power for the laborer to do it or something. I'm paraphrasing that big time. But it's such a great idea with the gospel. The Holy Spirit goes out and does the work. The, the word does its work. Jesus does his work, but he invites us to come alongside and be part of that. And here we are. We're the ones that are maybe putting the hammer and the nail together, but it's God who makes something supernatural happen there. He's the one that protects the city, even though the watchman sits guard all night, the verse goes on to say. And so your witness makes a difference. You can't just sit back and say, well, you know, God's going to do what he's going to do. He's going to save those he's going to save. That's what they say, right? So I'm just going to just do my thing, do my life. And No, God says he uses you in the process to be a witness for him. And so we are to witness. We're to help those see God. 
And it's possible for somebody who's spiritually blind and not yet can see that God uses you to open their eyes. And that's true within the church, not just for salvation. It's also true within the church body. Because it's so easy for us to become blinded by sin. Because that's what sin does. Sin loves darkness. Sin loves to keep you isolated, alone, away from the community. And that's why we keep plugging K-groups. And that's why we plug Fight Club. And that's why the class that we do for the guys, and I'm sure the ladies' class is equally as awesome, but this guy's class is an opportunity to help you expose those areas where you're in the dark, when you're embracing sin, where you're not being the husband and father that you should be. And it helps you along. Someone told me, they said, wow, for one of the first times ever, like my husband's like taking spiritual leadership in the home because of the class. That should be an encouragement, guys. Because of this class, it's encouraging to people. But yet we can easily just live our life with our blinders on and just do our thing and totally forget about being a witness for the light and helping not just the lost, but helping each other in this process. Diedrich Bonhoeffer is a name you may have heard of, maybe not, but he was a German theologian back during the time of World War II. He was a Nazi resistor. And this quote was amazing. I ran across this this week. It says, Sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him, and the more deeply he becomes involved in it, the more disastrous is his isolation. Sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light. In the darkness of the unexpressed, it poisons the whole being of a person. And that is so, so true. Anybody been there, done that? You've been in that moment where you've been isolated from community away and you just bring all this self-destructive lifestyle on yourself and you just engage sin and maybe you can put a smile on your face and you can act like things are okay in front of people but inside you're falling apart, you're rotting, sin's got such a hold on your heart and your mind. And we're to come alongside each other and shine the light of Christ because sin hates the light. It does. Sin hates light. Sin loves isolation. And isolation loves sin. And isolation will kill your soul. So we need one another to encourage one another, help one another. And then verse 10 and 11. But sinners reject this light. They love their sin. It's a moral issue. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But, I'm going to stop right there, but. Not to be crude, but there's some pretty amazing buts in Scripture, for real. I didn't mean that would be funny, but I couldn't say it any other way. Something great is about to happen when you see a passage, and it's saying something, and then you see the word but in there. I think about Passages like Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We're going one direction, it's looking awful, it's looking dismal, but God has a different plan. It's not the end of the story. It's not the end of the message. Psalm 73.26, my flesh and my heart may fail, 
but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You've been there, you've rallied around Psalm 73, 26 before. God, my flesh and my heart, they're failing. God says, it's not the end of the story. I'm the strength of your heart, and I'm your portion forever. Ephesians chapter 2, Daniel will probably allude to this in a few weeks. But you were dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sin. But God being rich in mercy. But God being rich in mercy. Man. Hello. It's more exciting than Georgia Clemson last night, all right? It really is. It, wake up. It, it's, it's, it's awesome. It's amazing that we were dead. The wages of sin meant death. But God. The gospel. And he says, be a witness. I don't know how. Tell what happened. You were dead and now you're alive. You were alienated from God, but now he's received you because of Jesus. He's your strength and your portion. I was literally alone, isolated in a hospital room, but God met me and delivered me. And I want to do something about it. I want to do something good from this. But it's not the end of the story. It tells us there's more to it. And look what verse 12 says. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave us, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but born of God. And so we see another great contrast that John likes to do. Light and darkness, here he says, rejection and reception. Some rejected, some received, but to all who received. And he connects this to believe, receive and believe. You believe, you receive him, you believe in his name, all that he is, all that he is for us in Christ, that Christ is on the cross for us. We're born again, verse 13, we're born, and he's making a point to say this is not the natural death, birth, I'm sorry, and we'll go through this in chapter 3, so I won't go into it in great detail today, but they're not born of a woman, you're reborn, you're born the second time. And if you've seen a child be born, and I've been in the hospital room for four children, and it was the most amazing thing ever to see them come out and to see them and hold them. But honestly, they're not real pretty, are they, when they first come out? And, and they got blood all over them, and you got to cut that umbilical cord. I didn't want anything to do with that, honestly. And, and, and they just look kind of like, okay, uh, yes, this is a human being, but I don't really see it. But you know what happens? Over time, your child, what does a child do? It begins to look more and more like you, right? Your child begins to take on your mannerisms and their natural character and who they are and their facial expressions, and all these things begin to show in them. Why? Because they're born into your family or they're part of your DNA. They've been born, and as born-again believers, we begin to look more and more like Christ in our lives. We begin to take on more of his character, his demeanor, his attitude. And we said that a few weeks ago in the quote I read from Paul Tripp about we're the touch of Jesus. We're the smile of Jesus. We're the, the arm around the person who's struggling, Jesus, to them. And so we've been born again because of Christ and because we believed in him, put our faith in him, and now we become part of God's family, and it's a divine work. It's a supernatural work, and it changes everything. Be a witness. John was a witness. John, in his great personality, his big, big personality, he said, I'm not even worthy 
There's the man. I'm not the man. There's the man. It's all about Jesus, not about me. And so let's remember that this week. So much here, so much truth. But let's, let's at least wake one thought from our head that we need to remember. When it seems God's plan isn't coming together so well, just wait for it. Just wait for it. He's doing something. He's working. He's going to have that but in your life. Wow, life didn't seem to be going the way that God had said it was going to be. But now something's different. God's revealing himself to me. He's changing me. He's turning me into a person who's less about me and selfish and more about being a witness to him. And then our heart today, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. If you're in those moments of waiting, if you're thinking, where are you, God? Where are you, God? Know that you can wait patiently and be still for, before God. And then our hands, real practically. Here's what I want us to do. This is one where right now it's going to require you to do a little thinking, all right? I want you to think of one person that needs encouragement. Maybe they're in our church body. Maybe they're outside of our church body. But somebody who could be struggling with just life in general. Maybe they're struggling with, you know, you know they're struggling with sin. Maybe you just need to encourage them, take them to lunch, write them a note, reach out to them. But I'm going to ask you to think of one person specifically that you can reach out to this week. All right, so you got somebody's name in your head? All right. Now, think of the next step. What are you going to do? Are you going to talk to them personally, call them, text them, write a note, try to get together with them? What are you going to do in order to encourage them? Because it'll be easy to walk out, and then you'll be like, oh, you know, I forgot, forgot about that when I remind you next week. Make a note. Write it down. Make it a memory. It's going to stick in your mind. Because God wants us to be encouragement, a witness, the light, to reflect his light to them. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to step outside of your selfish, comfort, comfortable lifestyle and to be a witness, to, to share the light, to make him known and say it's all about you, Jesus? Jesus.